Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I am Jake Bennett recording this at a lovely 9 p.m. rather than 2 in the morning. And welcome to episode 77 of the North Meet South Web podcast. We got it. We figured it out. 77. And I'm rather chipper right now because it's, uh, it's a good time for me. Mm-hmm. It's 9 o'clock. So it's, it's great. Hey, speaking of uh, time zones, I'm using this amazing new tool suggested by our good friend TJ Miller called Dato, D-A-T-O. And I was Dato. using CCAL before this, I think is what it was called. And it's like a nice mm-hmm. little menu bar thing. Like, I don't know if, I, I never knew the, the calendar up in your bar using your default time settings, but apparently you can. But anyway, this makes mm-hmm. it way better. So you click it and it opens up a little mini calendar and it shows you what events are coming up. And then the, my favorite little feature is it will show me time zones so I can see what time it is in Adelaide, Australia without having to. So it's nice. Nice. Yeah, it is very good. And uh, does it does the 24-hour time thing, which I appreciate very much because uh, then I don't have to, I don't want to deal with AMP. Restart your computer. Your primary language has changed. Incorrect. I didn't change my primary language. What on earth? Those darn computers. Oh, don't restart. Oh, computers are hard, man. Okay, so there was, yeah, I, so I talked about data. Nice. The next thing on our list was Brooklyn Nine Nine. So, what would you, what did you want to say about this? There was something about Brooklyn Nine Nine. So are you, are you familiar with the show Brooklyn Nine Nine? I am familiar with it. I've only watched one episode. I probably need to watch a couple more, huh? You probably don't need to watch just a few more than that. It's a, it's a, it's a procedural comedy. It's starring uh, Andy Samberg, yep. Terry Crews. Yep. Uh, it's, it's basically a, a cop show, right? right. And it's. And it's very funny, but things are a little bit iffy at the moment. Do you think they could just like, I saw, I'm, I'm not taking credit for this. I saw this tweet somewhere and I probably won't be able to find it. But do you think that the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine could change just like between seasons from being a show about cops to being a show about the United States Postal Service? Do you think they could just do that without saying anything? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think they could do that. Yeah. Is it because, is it because uh, cops are getting such a bad rap right now? That they're, mm, they're literally mm. they're considering changing Especially, the show. Especially, yeah, yeah. Seriously, wow. I don't, I don't, That's I don't, amazing. I don't know that they're considering changing the show, but it's like it was, this was just like some some tweet, you know, that went went viral. But I mean, the show's won two Emmys. They've won Golden Globes. I mean, it's a good show, uh, but I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't think they should change it. I don't, certainly don't think they should stop it. But at the same time, things are a little bit, a little bit, you know, funny at the moment. Yeah, if there's anything we like, you know, like comedy is a good way to kind of deal with that stuff sometimes, mm-hmm. though, right? Like sometimes, like yeah. sometimes, like if you don't laugh, you cry, I kind of thing. Like yeah. I don't know, like I, I'm okay with kind of bringing some humor to some of us, some stuff. I, I'm not sure, whatever. I'm sure people have really strong opinions about this, so I prob- probably uh, probably uh, stop myself from putting my foot in my mouth about any of this. So suffice it to say, I kind of doubt they could change it to a postal service show halfway through. But in any case, with that cast, whatever they do is going to be hilarious. So, you know, yeah, sure, why not change it to the postal service? Yeah, do what do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. Okay, so uh, you have been working like a madman on then ping me. Um, so mm-hmm. do we want to jump right, or do you want do you want to take a little side trip over my HTTP layer land? Yeah, let's let's talk about that because you just snuck that onto our little talking points here, just out of nowhere. So tell me what what are we doing? What are these HTTP layers in the middle? Okay, so kind of this is the situation that I've had, and you know we've got this new. Um, I'm gonna go look up the Laravel docs real quick. 
Yeah, so we've got this new amazing HTTP client, right, that you can uh, use with Laravel, and it allows you to do some amazing things. Um, so basically, it's a nice little minimal wrapper around the Guzzle HTTP client, which allows you to quickly make outgoing HTTP requests, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's really nice because it lets you do your um, mocking and your uh, fakes and all of that stuff uh, really nicely for your tests, right? And that's great. And so that that honestly solves 9% of the problem between your production environment and your testing environment. So that's great. The problem that I have is when I'm in my local environment. So if you're anything like me, you have a local version of your app that you're working on that falls between production and tests. So you don't want production data. I don't want to use production data. I don't want to hit production API endpoints when I'm just browsing around mm -hmm. on my local computer. But I also can't really use test data either. Like I can't be like, like the test methods aren't like available to me when I'm in my local environment. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. So like the get JSON and all those kind of things, right? Yeah, right. So like I still have to use regular, the regular HTTP client. I can't use like the test faking responses, all that stuff when I'm in my local development environment. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So like, what's yeah. the typical, what's the typical handling of that? Now I talked to Taylor about this a while ago and he said, oh, we just hit production. Like we just hit production yeah. stuff. Like we just have a, a, um, you know, maybe like the best way to think about this would be like, if you're using something like, um, Stripe, you just have a sandbox, right? So there's like yeah. the sandboxed environment, this test environment, and that's awesome. And that's great. And maybe the APIs that you're working with all have the luxury of having a test or sandboxed environment. But if you live in the real world, that's probably not the case. There's probably not always a sandbox that you can just screw around with. So mm -hmm. you're left with this sort of, uh, what do I do with this, right? So this is the situation. So are we talking, in, in your situation, are we talking third-party APIs or are we talking APIs that you own? Yeah, for the sake of like um, helping me to understand or helping you to understand, maybe like I, we don't have a microservice architecture, but let's just say that's the situation. Let's just say that we have, and, and I mean, in some senses, that's sort of what we have. Like we have this one legacy database that lives on this crusty old machine. And mm -hmm. in order to be able to interface with that, we basically have a Laravel app that sits right next to that machine and proxies requests for us through to that machine. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we have this, um, it's this, we, the system is called Cubs, and so we call it Cubs API. So cubsapi.wolvergroup.com sits there and we make requests to Cubs API and then it interacts with that legacy old crusty database and does some stuff and then it returns values back to us, right? So it's just this little mm -hmm. proxy. So it's like first party, it's like our own thing, but we need to interact with it in a lot of our apps for a lot of different things. And so we don't have a sandbox environment for that. Like there's really no way to sandbox it. It's like you just have an install and there it is. Like you, you know, you have test files, like you have a specific test file, maybe two or three like files that you can test, but uh, there's a lot more that you would need to test other than just that, right? So so what's the what's the solution to that? So maybe it maybe I'm the only one dealing with this problem. Like, do you guys interact with any first party APIs in your environment? Like, are you talking to any of your other yeah. apps over APIs? Yeah. So like in that situation, like if you're if app A talks to app B, what do you do when you're working locally for those interactions, for those calls? What do you do? How do you fake those or do you actually make the real calls or what do you do? 
Well, there's there's two two ways that, that we actually do deal with this. The first one is to have a local copy, like because we've got that that other API. Sure. So, so we you just, just point it to your local clone, copy. We just clone it down, and then we've got you know, um, you'd have Cubs dot test or Cubs API dot test, sure. and you'd have you know Wilbur app dot test, and Wilbur app dot test would just send its API request to Cubs API dot test, sure. and that's yep. that. Um, now you may not necessarily have access to the crusty old database, the, the, like the Cubs database locally. So you would have to build the functionality to like simulate that. So you could flick a environment variable or something like that, that instead of calling the Cubs database directly, it would just return fixtures. And for testing, that's probably okay. Like for one of our, we've got a first party API that talks to a third party API in in a staging environment and that staging environment that's provided by the third party just returns fixtures fixtures so we say like get id1 and it returns a specific set of data and so they give us documentation around what that response will look like right so we know that when you ask for service id1 it will return this address these details and then we can like we do all of our testing and stuff against that before we go um, to do a production certification. So that's one way of doing it. Um, the other way would be just with like a, a client fake that you could switch locally in in your like Wilbur, Wilbur.test or Wilburgroup.test or whatever it is, which just returns fixtures directly from the HTTP client. Yeah. Right? So you, and, and whether or not you just, like make them static JSON files or or whatever it is, but you would just have that locally and it would just always return that. So it would be instant in your local environment where you don't really care about what the data is. You just care that it like responds with something that, you know, looks valid and really it's just for your developers. So it doesn't like, does it matter necessarily what that response is as long as it's correctly structured? Yep. Yep. That makes sense. So so I kind of wanted to present like the solution that we've come up with that we use in all of our apps and see if it might be helpful to somebody out there. So we have mm-hmm. done the situation where we will do, uh, we reach out to our local copy of our other one. But essentially, really, that's kind of just kicking it down the road for us, kicking the can down the road. Because if I'm talking to cubsapi.test and returning fixtures from that, I'm still building that functionality over there, right? I'm, I'm building the fixtures in some place, whether it's in the, in the app that I need to be calling that Cubs API from, or if it's a Cubs API that I'm building the fixtures in. The advantage, I think, to building the fixtures into the Cubs API one is that you prevent yourself from getting like this API drift where the thing that you're like, the structure of the call that you're making from the app to Cubs API has to continue to with what's actually on Cubs API, like what it's expecting the response to look like, you know what I'm saying, or the request mm-hmm. to look like. Whereas if mm-hmm. you're just working with local fixtures and you're just kind of changing it there, you might not always, like you might accidentally break sort of the contract, you will, with like your your API on the other side, if that makes sense. Yeah, but there should be no drift because you control both the client and the server. No, I agree. I agree. So- I'm saying like it could happen though. Like because... Because you can kind of do whatever you want. Like if you're just returning fixtures from your side, like if you're just returning fixtures from within the app, mm-hmm. right? And you can just kind of literally do whatever you want. There's there's um, no way like in your local environment to know that you are that you are making a request different than what is going to be accepted on the other side because you're just, it's just so local. Is, so is your Cubs API client part of the, the app or is it a, a separate package that you pull in? 
It's not a package at all. It's basically just like we have endpoints and then we have like, we just have endpoints and we just make requests, right? So it's not like have a, um, trying to think of what you even call that, that thing. You don't have an SDK. SDK. Thank you. Yes. No, we do not have an SDK. Okay. Step one, make an SDK. Okay. That's the next step then. Probably would be a good and, idea. And, and all you do is take all of that code that you've got in your app and you plop it in the SDK. And then the SDK is responsible for your fixtures, right? And then you would just have a, a, a Cubs API SDK config file, which has a switch in there that says like sandbox mode. And yep. when sandbox mode, is o- sandbox mode is on, it just returns the JSON fixtures for everything rather than hitting the actual API. Yeah. So that's kind of what um, we, it's kind of what we have. It's just like not formalized. Like- formalized in yeah. a different way like we don't have a package yeah. that has an sdk but we have something that like swaps it out so basically the structure that we have whenever we set up a new one of these things is we call it a gateway first of all so like there's probably i can think of like three or four cubs api is one of them but there's other ones like uh lambda horizon we have our own like those those horizon sounds like a laravel thing it is but it isn't it's actually an app on our internal network um so those are also like APIs that we need to reach out to and talk to. So anytime we're going to be talking with one of these first-party services that we have, we call it a gateway first. And then we set up a interface, which defines all the different uh, methods that you might call from it, right? And then we have an HTTP gateway and we have a fake gateway. So the HTTP mm-hmm. actually makes the requests over. The fake gateway just returns fixture data. And then we have a service provider, which will swap which implementation we're using based on the environment that we're in. So if we're in production, use the HTTP gateway. If we're in local, or if we're in not production, use the fake gateway. And then we yep. also have a facade, uh, which makes it really, really test. So we can just say right. facade should receive, you know, duplicate docs once mm-hmm. with argument, yep. whatever, right? So, um, and so you've got multiple apps that all talk to the Cubs yes. API? Yes, yes. And so each of these apps duplicates all of these things? Well, they typically don't need the same stuff. Like they typically all need their own individual. Like it's very rare that we actually have like crossover between the different behaviors that need to be. I know that seems weird. I, I'm, But each basically each one of these things, it's not, there's not like a common, common language here. It's like literally every single command that you need to run against this thing has to be custom built. There is no like... <laughs> I know that sounds so crazy, but it's literally like, like if you wanted to run a command that said update, um, update this user's password. That's a pretty bad example, but update this user's password. <laughs> you have to write a custom command for that, and and typically, like in the case that we're doing, they're not as generic as that. It's typically more like update these five fiscals and then message this one particular person, and that all has to be written in like a sub command, and so you literally only call that from like one spot one app. So there's very little crossover between the apps. So like I hear what you're saying with an SDK, but typically like you're not making the same call from multiple places. There's typically an app that makes one call to one endpoint. So I don't know. (laughs) I would still, I would still create the SDK, which is responsible for the actual transport. Sure. I think, I think that's correct. Yeah. And then your individual apps could construct their payloads or whatever and just use the SDK to send the the actual request i think that's a good and idea. then your yeah. and then your http gateway and your fake gateway and your service provider and your facade all live in the package because all of that stuff should be consistent between all of your apps yep 
and then you could put the, the handling in there. And then, as I said, you'd have a, a switch that you could toggle between sandbox mode and fixture mode, or, you know, fixture mode and, right. and live mode. And then I would even make it like we did with then ping me that the endpoint URL is configurable. Cause then we do you could now. test yeah, against a, a live um, test API where you could point it at, you know, cubs test. Right. And then you could send requests to an actual implementation of, of the API itself to make sure that that works. And then inside of your SDK is where you would put all your contract tests and all of your integration tests with the actual Cubs API. So you make sure everything from the SDK to the API works and you make sure that all of the responses are adhering to the contract that says, you know, in my payload, there will be an ID and there will be a name and there will be a, um, you know, a, a contract ID and whatever so that you make sure that you don't have any drift from the actual implementation and then all of your downstream packages would just construct their payloads and send them through the SDK, you know, through that actual client. And that way you don't have to duplicate the gateway and the fakes and all of that between all of your different apps. And all of the apps need to worry about is is sending a payload through a unified interface. Yeah, no, I think that's a way And then idea. your SDK, your SDK could realistically just be, um, you know, cubs, arrows, send, the name like you know slash whatever the endpoint is and then dollar payload yep and and that way that'll cut down especially if it sounds like you've got this in a lot of places and everything's interacting with it it sounds like it'd be an easier way to at least make sure you have a consistent interface like you know these things can be ever so slightly different um if you spin up a new internal app it means that you're then duplicating your gateways and your h like all of that stuff has to be duplicated currently yeah um, which it is it's and, duplicated and, everywhere but and, we have a and, structure to it like yeah. it's always consistent like but but yeah, I hear sure, what you're saying. Sure, but my guess is you're just copy and pasting the classes from, you know, you drag the folder from this project into the new project and then you add it to the new project and then it's like, yeah, we've got the same thing in two places. And then instead of having API drift, you've got a drift in all of your gateways that they're all going to be slightly different. Where, you know, because they're not versioned, they're not yep. they're not maintained in a in a central place. So, um, and, and we do that ourselves. We have a couple of SDKs where we do that. Um, and then we just, call those and we don't have to worry about anything else yeah i think that makes i think that makes it consistent for like the how you interact with it on the input side and then also how you interact with like if you throw or if you get like an exception like if you get an exception from you know or exceptional response from cubs api how you handle that um because that's the other that's mm-hmm. the other thing that's actually probably more problematic the input stuff is super simple i mean like we're talking about i mean it's really simple the input side of things but the response side of things is where it gets a little bit hairier See, yeah. it's a little more crazy because each app kind of handles that differently. So that would yeah. be I like that the have the SDK. Yeah. I like that the Laravel HTTP client actually swallows the guzzle exceptions mm-hmm. and then you you have to explicitly check to see if the request was successful or if it failed or whatever. Right. I think that's much nicer than you know because then you you demonstrate the intent in your code that you explicitly say, "Hey, if this request was successful, I want to see this." Otherwise, you do whatever processing you need. Whereas Guzzle's default is to just throw an exception, and then the error goes into Sentry, and then you come, you see that like two days later, and you go, you know, we've got to go and fix this because we've got the the Sentry, um, the throttle or whatever it is, you know, yeah, the yeah. rate limit they yeah. put in when you've suddenly got twenty thousand events that get fired in the space of two days. So, um, we always gracefully yeah, I think- fail on those exceptions. Typically, like almost always, like we always catch those mm-hmm. and respond like with something, but. It gets yeah. a little bit annoying. Yeah. 
is a better way to handle yeah, it. Yeah, I like sure. the I, I like the explicit handling that the the Laravel HTTP client yep. forces on you in that you like you you need to explicitly say, hey, if this was a successful thing, then you do your happy path. Um, otherwise, you you handle the error. And whether that's just reporting whatever the error was, or you know, sending a, an alert or something, that's cool. But it it's it's much nicer than the random exception. Right, right. I agree. Awesome. So that's all I had on that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, on nice. to on to then ping me updates and craziness. So what do we got going on with that? Mm-hmm. Heaps. Um, I finally I actually had to seek approval from our uh, infosec team to make sure that I could use then ping me at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was good. And then then began the journey of discovery of <laughs> all of all of our tasks that were actually bad tasks that weren't running or tasks that ran long. All of these things that, you know, we just assumed everything was fine because we didn't get any errors. But um, we had talked previously, I put out a video for this a while ago around, around uh, you know, not doing too much in your scheduled tasks. And Jack Ellis actually spoke about this or put a blog post about it on Laravel News. We had, you know, seven things to, to improve your apps or whatever. And and I took one of those a little bit further, and that was around how the Laravel scheduler actually handles running tasks. And so, if you have a, a task that runs, or or if you've got three or four tasks that all run on the on the same schedule, so if you've got three tasks that run um, every five minutes, and you've got a fourth task that runs every fifteen minutes, well, every fifteen minutes you suddenly got four tasks that are running on the same schedule. And the way that Laravel runs those tasks by the by default is um synchronously like one after yeah, the other right it so kind of cues them all up runs run. and run in the row yeah correct yeah so it just iterates over them by default so if you've got one task that takes 10 seconds to run and one task that takes 40 seconds to run and one task that takes you know 50 seconds to run suddenly you've got these tasks that are supposed to run at 15 minutes past the hour that are now running you know at 16 minutes past the hour and our default um alert time is 60 seconds so that that third task or that fourth fourth task may not run on time because they've been pushed out because of that because of that overlap and and what we actually found was that one of our tasks over the course of the day because it's processing calls that have come into the the phone system over the course of the day as we've taken more calls we process more and more records and so at midnight the task takes takes like you know, less than a second to run. By about lunchtime, it's taking a minute to run. By three, four in the afternoon, it's taking two minutes to run. And by midnight on that day, it's taking three minutes to run. So we, you know, we didn't know this because, you know, the task was just running and, and we had no reporting around it. So the the day that, that I deployed this into, uh, into our production app, we could see, oh, this task is slowly taking longer and longer to run, which is causing other tasks to to be delayed. And and I tweeted about this, um, you know, that maybe I don't actually want task monitoring because it's highlighting problems that I now have to go and solve in Correct. our application. The other, I was going to say, the other thing that we found out actually is that if like in, if you have like three jobs running at ten o'clock, and one of them fails with an exception, the other two don't run. Yeah, that's yeah. sucky. That's like, been fixed. That's now. really scary. Yeah, that you fixed that right, but. I in previous that, yeah. versions of Laravel, like if you haven't updated, mm-hmm. what what was that in seven dot um, 
It was in seven something. Seven yeah. something. So it was recently it was fixed. So yeah, if you're running a six dot whatever app, and like we had that bite us before, like this job yeah. that just supposed to send a bunch of email, like had an exceptional email, like there was some bad email on it, threw an exception, and then the other job that was mm-hmm. supposed to run at that time failed. Correct. Yeah. Because they ran one after the other, right. and they ran within that that schedule run process. Correct. If the the second of your four tasks threw an exception, and you didn't catch that exception, it would bubble up to the scheduler, and it would just bail out. So task three and four wouldn't actually run. So I submitted a, a PR that that was merged in as as we said a little while ago into the seven X branch, which essentially just catches and then reports that exception. So it'll go into your sentry, but it won't stop the next task from running. But it was. Eric Junker tweeted me uh, after I after I posted some musings about where I was at and said that Laravel actually has this run in background method that you can tack on to your um your schedule command. So in your console kernel, you'd have like schedule arrow command um you know inspire arrow every minute arrow run in background, and then. This requires, I think, PHP 7.1 and above. So it should be everyone that's on the on the latest version of Laravel are running a latest version of PHP. And it will essentially take that job and it'll fork it into a background process. And, it, and Laravel would manage that using PHP's um, process control libraries. And that would essentially just send it immediately into the background. So... These tasks that were taking, you know, up to three minutes to run and now running in 0.01 seconds because that's the time it takes for Laravel to go, oh, yeah, I need to send this to the background and off it goes. And I was a little bit nervous because, you know, we don't know if sending it to the background is is safe, you know, because right. if you've always been running it in, in that same process, then forking it off into the background could break maybe. Um, fortunately, it's been fine. So... These are the kind of insights that we just didn't have before that I think are really, you know, a really good thing for you to have and for us to have in then Pingming because we can show you those things. They're like, hey, these tasks will actually cause you, like not maybe, it will cause you problems whether now or at some point in the future, it'll cause your tasks to start failing because they've, they're pushed off, off schedule or they're not reporting or something like that. So um, it was cool to have that in there and to see that as well so and because we have all uh, the information about what your schedules look like right now right right now like we know if you have something scheduled for 10 o'clock if you have two things scheduled for 10 o'clock or like another actually example that i've had before was where i had one i had two jobs that were slightly offset like i had to import closed files and then i had, had to import open files and i said import closed files and then five minutes later import open files import closed files took 10 minutes and so import open files never ran because it was still running. You know what I'm saying? Like the mm-hmm. schedule, if it's running yeah. and it's running for minutes, it, it misses running those next jobs that would have ran if it was if it was already, if it was already done. So it took me forever to figure out that that's what was happening, right? Like it, it just took an eternity to figure out why is that dang thing not importing? But the reason yeah. why is because the the other one was still running. And I thought for sure, like, well, certainly it just spawns another process and runs. It doesn't. It doesn't do that. But you would never yeah. know that though you would never know that that was the reason but since we have all the information about your scheduled tasks and we can kind of look and see how long is the other one taking to run and is it overlapping mm-hmm. your other one that's supposed to be running yeah we can we can give yeah. you some intelligence and some information about uh how to maybe modify your schedule to work correctly and i don't know if it's you know for for us anything that's run running in the background is typically pretty critical business critical stuff 
Um, mm-hmm. they, there's very few things that we put like in, in a kernel scheduler that isn't important. Like there's very few things in there that is like, oh, it doesn't matter if it runs. If it runs it fine, yeah. it's fine. If it doesn't, it's no big deal. Yeah, like, schedule tasks are typically business critical. Like this has to run at this time to, you know, make sure all of our all of our client data is up to date to make sure that all of our services are healthy to make sure we bill our customers like billing is one of those things that if you're not offloading recurring payments to something like stripe if you're running your own billing or you're raising your own invoices or whatever like that needs to run every day or on the first of the month or on the you know the 15th of the month like that has to run and if that doesn't run when it's supposed to and you don't know about it, you know, you might not notice for a day or two. Your your finance team might be processing end of month and they don't look, or you know, I suppose end of month they would they would look and go, hey, where do, where's all this money we're expecting? But you know, generally speaking, if you don't know that it was supposed to run, then unless you're told that it didn't, you might not know about it for yeah. a day or two days or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes like Sorry. when it overlaps a day, like sometimes that's that's the tragedy, right? It's like if you don't catch it that day and you catch it the next day, it's like Oh no! Like because it's hard to go yeah. backwards in time. Like, if you catch it that day, then you can just run it again. No big deal, right? Everything's still the current mm-hmm. day. All the dates are still lined up. You just run it again. But if it's like the next yeah. day, it can be disastrous. And like in the industry that we work in, like if we're going to hit somebody's uh, account and deduct money, we have to let them know in advance. Even though we have like a payment arrangement set up, we have to let them mm-hmm. know like nine days in advance. Hey, we're going to be hitting your account on this day for this amount just yeah. a heads up right make sure the money's there and that yeah. that has got to like compliance we have to send that out like every day we're sending those out nine days out like and if we yeah. don't send it that's a really big problem so yeah we have we have a lot of those types of jobs where it's like it must run today must run today and yeah. so without any monitoring and if you we say have- we yeah and if you say that like we're going to bill you in nine days and you bill them on day 10 that's probably going to be an issue as also well, right? yes correct exactly so yeah it's just- yeah I'll be really, really glad when this thing's got all the little tiny bugs worked out. For the most part, it's working like a like amazingly. Mm. Yeah, um, it's it's working really well. It's highlighted some issues in you know our apps, as I said that that we've now fixed. Well, I say fixed. I think we've just hidden them under the rug by running <laughs> running them in the background. Um, I mean, and it's also like highlighted a couple of edge cases in terms of like when a scheduled task runs, we will. The Laravel will send this, will fire the start event. And then we have a listener that will pick up that event. It'll dispatch a, a job onto the queue to then send the ping to say that it's started. And then another job to say that it's finished. Now, one thing I noticed the other day is if you've got like a really short running task, if it's taking, you know, five tenths of a second or, you know, 500 milliseconds or whatever. So your start and event, start and finish events come really close together. And then you've got Horizon is picking them up. You might have two workers pick up those jobs at the same time. And the finish may actually get sent before the start. Now, we had already built handling for that. And it freaked me out for a little while because like we had some overlap with a couple of things. So when the finish event comes out of order from the start, it may appear as though a task is missing. Um, so we had to you know fix up that. And we, we've seen all kinds of like weird little race condition issues um, you know, tasks that were running late cause things to not be on schedule when they're supposed to. It, it's it's been you know five or six fun days of just fixing up little things in the UI, fixing up little things in in you know the actual processing of of the executions and and the tasks and things like that. So 
it's it's been an adventure and it's and it's fun seeing you know other people work on it and and finding out like what kind of edge cases they're going to come across because you'd think it's a it's a straightforward thing but given it's taken us six months to get to this point it's really not that that straightforward and there's always something um i discovered just yesterday we have a job-based scheduled task that runs once a week and the way that we were calculating the fingerprint for that task was not turns out didn't work properly yeah we had tell me about that it. because we were talking about that yesterday a little bit but i i didn't yeah. really and it was i i made the correct guess you said can you figure out why and i said does it have to do with the time in which it comes in or something right and that's why the fingerprint was different tell me a little bit about yeah. that because like, i didn't i'm we we didn't get a chance to fully discuss that so with, with I, I did have a test for this so this was in the then ping me client that you install into your Laravel app that is responsible for fingerprinting your tasks and and figuring out when they started and when they finished and how long they ran for and all that kind of stuff and then sending the the request or the pings to the to our application and so there was a test that verified that the fingerprint was the same at the start of the execution as it was at the end because we get two different events so we have to like figure out based on the event the data that's in the event how to ensure that the event we get for a finish is the same as the start and it's not from a different execution. So like if you get an overlapping task, for example, the fingerprint for the two different start events must be different. So we can't use the mutex that Laravel computes for a task. So Laravel will actually compute a mutex to say, this this task is this, which is essentially a combination of um, the cron expression. So the schedule that it runs on and the the command itself. So you know that this task that runs at star, 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 like every minute that is called inspire is like that is one permutation. But you could also have um, a version of inspire that runs every five minutes, which is the same command, but it's on a different schedule. So the mutex is is obviously different. It's calculated differently. But we needed to make sure not only is the task that's running every time the same so that we can you know match it up on our end but that the start matches with the end right so if you're sending and if you yeah, have over, right you're sending from yeah. server a so to if, server b correct so if you have or yeah or the same task running on two different servers or the same task running and they overlap if i get two start events they're from unique executions but they are the same event so we need to be able to distinguish between those to say that, you know, this start event and this start event are for two different runs of the same task. So th- there was a test for that that verified it was the same, but it was only for one scenario, right? It was only for a scheduled command. I didn't have tests for scheduled commands, scheduled jobs, scheduled um, arbitrary shell commands, closures, and jobs. Those are the five different um, types of, of tasks that you can schedule. And so this task that runs once a week that happened to be a job-based task just didn't like it. I ended up with two start records and I couldn't figure out why. And the reason it was because of the way that we have to handle tasks coming or, or um, events coming out of order that we could get a finish before we get a start. We recorded the start, but the fingerprint of that task execution was not the same between the start and the finish so the finish came in and and said its own, oh yeah, we didn't get a start yet. So we'll just like 
set it all up as though the start had happened and we just missed the start. But then the start had also come in. So then the start... Because timed out, yeah. The, the start looked like it had timed out because the finish had a different fingerprint. Right. So it looked like it was a different execution. Um, so we now have tests for all of the different permutations of a, of a scheduled command. Man, I think I spoke for like five minutes there and I'm not sure that I really explained that problem very well. No, that made total sense um, to me. I mean, I don't know if it'll make sense to everybody else, but it made yeah. total sense to me. I understood what you're saying. I still don't, okay. I still don't know what the problem was. Like what was the specific thing that was causing the fingerprint to change? Well, okay, so that was the way that we were computing the fingerprint. Yeah. Was not, was not, was done in a way that was not consistent across calls within the same process. So it, it was only a small change that needed to be made, thankfully. Um, and, and that is now consistent across all of the different types. So we should, should be good to go there. Nice. So it's been nice. As I said, it's been nice. It's been hard because like some of the problems are not easier to solve. Um, there's like time zone issues that I was wrestling with for a while. On, a, on that, if in Laravel, you can tell your application using the date facade to always use carbon immutable. So that, yep. so if you don't use carbon immutable, if you have a date instance and you say like, this is start of day, and then you take that same instance and you want to set end of day, if you're not using carbon immutable, both your dollar start and dollar end will be the same value as dollar end because it's updated um, and mutated it off because you've updated it right so you may be expecting like the start to be at midnight and the end to be 1159 but if you're not using carbon immutable both the start and end will change to 1159 pm now we we had set that in our application but we were using carbon period so we wanted to basically find all of the days between, you know, X and Y, and we would get an instance of carbon for each of those days. But carbon period by default won't use those date settings. So it was, it was basically doing what I just explained. It was taking all my start and ends and converting them all to the end of the same day. So it was not able to find that a, that a particular timestamp was between the start and the end because right. it was, you know, so yeah, all of these little things that you just stumble upon fixing unrelated things in the application. So um it's it's been fun. <laughs> Problems have been solved. Um I've got three different applications monitored now. Um or three different projects that are being monitored. One of them constantly raises alerts, um which is annoying and I don't really know why. One of them has been perfect, like not a single error for three days, which is wonderful. That's what we want to see. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of like and then a little bit of time to whip them into shape, right? It's like as soon as you put the scheduler on it, it's like it's going to kind of it might be a little bit of a pain, but it's mm-hmm. it's necessary, right? It's like you can't just pretend it exists. And <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like if you actually want them to perform correctly, it might take a little bit of work once you get it set up. Correct. Yeah. And then the other fun one is then ping me itself. We um we're using then ping me to monitor then ping me. Now sometimes and I I I've been I've been seeing this intermittently since you know last week. And sometimes then ping me's own tasks run late and I I 
I couldn't put my finger on why until yesterday and I, I had a good laugh out loud moment when I realized it is that sometimes the process that Zen Ping Me runs to check for missing executions or missing tasks runs quicker than it can process the ping that it sends to say that the task has started. <laughs> so our, our check missing tasks task will run and it will send its start event. But before then ping me has had a chance to process that start event to say that the task is on time, the process finds that it has not yet run. <laughs> and so it says that the task itself like the task that it is that is running to check whether or not the tasks are on time is saying that it is not running on time. So um, I don't know that there's a solution to that problem. Like sometimes the, the database it will be quicker than, you know, unless we just put a delay of like half a second in there or a second into that task that's like fire the start event, sleep for one second, and then continue processing, which should, in theory, be enough time to for that start event to be processed. When okay, but so I had a good chuckle. So when we are looking at our um, check for missing tasks task, when we're doing that, um, are we accounting in there? So we have like our next run at, right? So we've yep. we've gotten one in, so it's no longer pending. It's it's <laughs> like it's you know a active task that we're monitoring. We just get the next run at timestamp for that, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of when I was first building it, I tried to build this sort of grace period into that the way that I feel like it's easiest to do that is to set the next run out to be like a minute after it's supposed to run, because then you always kind of have a minute before it's going to fail. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it would be weird if you did that, because then the next run out date is going to be like a minute after it's supposed to be. <laughs> So you're not actually yeah. storing the next run at timestamp. But then the problem is like, if you want to do it, if you want to store the exact next run at timestamp and you want to give it a, a minute delay before it fails, when you run that, you have to like compute the next run at timestamp instead of just being able to yeah. query which mm -hmm. ones are in the past. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I don't it's know. It's another one of those things we're working on. We'll have to figure that out. Yeah. Yep. 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 Well, fun. Lots of fun stuff. Lots of fun stuff, but I will He's say the OBG, UI is yeah. looking pretty freaking amazing. It's looking great. Yeah, I'm very thankful to uh, Steve and uh, Old Mate Adam for all the work that they've put into Tailwind UI. I've had a few people actually reach out to me and say, you know, that looks really good. What are you using? I'm like, it's just Tailwind UI. Like, <laughs> yep, snap and, it together, and it, Lego I think, pieces. Yeah, I think that's testament to the work that that they've actually done in in building Tailwind UI and how all of like. I can copy and paste individual components from Tailwind UI into our project and snap them all together as and where I need them. And everything just looks like it fits together. So that's testament shout out to Adam and Steve for the work they've done to, to make that work because everything just looks like it belongs together, even though it's all just like bits and pieces that we're clicking together. Yeah. Yep, for sure. And they're adding more stuff every day. So they just added those drop downs the other day that look amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And I love that they have all the JavaScript versions now too that they're doing. And so they want to do a Vue, React, and Alpine, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. That's going to be cool. Yeah. And shout out also to Caleb Pozio for both Alpine. 
I've only used Alpine in one place and that two places, sorry. One place is for the drop down menu because it was just absolute like nothing for me to do that. It's just like open close on the data content. I don't know what it's called. I don't even know what it's called. That's how little JavaScript I write. <laughs> so you, you have like an X dash data attribute yeah. on on the on the scope. Yep. And we just have in there a JavaScript object that says open default it to false. And then when you click on the the icon to open the dropdown, you set that to true. And then you just apply whatever transition classes and things you need. And and there you've got a, a drop down that, that works just from like it's two lines so of code. So it used to be so much of a ha- it used to be such a hassle. Like yeah. it was either like you're gonna pull in some nasty jQuery library, or you're gonna pull in some really uh you were gonna search around forever for a uh renderless component so that you could customize yeah, the style. Which don't of exist. It or- everything, yeah, everything was like styled to a specific view, you know, and it yeah. and when you get those things like, you know, it's always the calendar pickers that you just get the one that looks the nicest that fits as closely to your application as right. possible. Yeah. It's never like no one's building a, a date picker and and then you just end up with like this one part of your UI that is different to the rest of your UI, which is always an, a little bit annoying. So this looks beautiful. And and the other thing that we used it for is for like localizing date time. Right. So in our UI, it will show, we, we store everything in UTC, but the UI will show everything in your local time zone. So it will show that a task is due one minute from now. And it will show that like it is due at 12.26 p.m., right? Not not in like our application that runs in UTC. So it's not going to show that it that it was due at like 3 a.m. It's going to show that it's due right now. So I can look at it and see immediately, okay, this needs to run one minute from now. Um, and, and so we just did that with with Alpine and with like the just the JavaScript date prototype. So that was good. And also to Livewire. Livewire has made... Um, all of the interactive, like live updating elements of our UI work really well and really easily. Um, they're all on five second in polling intervals at the moment. They probably don't need to be that short given that cron only runs every minute. Um, but just from a you know testing and, and development perspective, it's it's good to have that live refresh just to make sure that everything because otherwise you're just sitting there like looking at and the it screen looks so waiting for it's so cool. Yeah. So I'm I'm very pleased with that. It's all coming together. There's still bits and pieces we need to do in terms of UI. Um, you can't like delete a project at the moment. <laughs> I ha- I haven't rewritten that bit. Um, and there's like you know the config stuff that you're going to work on around grace periods and and things like that for settings for for tasks and and so on. And then the actual alerts themselves. I think that that those are the last couple of pieces that we need to put together before we can start getting this into the hands of of some people to. Start poking at the beta testers. The beta testers, beta as you call them, beta testers. That's right. That's right. Anyway, and then I and then after that, that maybe a... you'll someday we'll work out billing. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's funny seeing some other people that are that are working on billing. I, I mean, I don't know how far along they are in the actual product, but they're like, "Oh, we're working on billing." I'm like, "Yeah, we've been working on this for six months, and we haven't even really <laughs> thought about billing yet." So <laughs> The good thing is Laravel provides some really nice solutions for it, so it's like you don't have yeah. to reinvent the wheel on it. You just kind of drop it in. Yeah, yeah. using Stripe, and if you're using um, Molly or Paddle or um, sorry, PayPal using Cashier. Yeah. And whether, yeah, yeah, and if you're using, you know, Stripe or Molly or or um, Paddle, like it's all, it's all just there, so shout out to 
Um, I think is it Sander Van someone is responsible for the Molly integration and then Dries has worked on the paddle and, and the stripe integrations as well. So thanks to y'all because I know you're going to make our lives easier with that stuff. Thanks also to our show sponsors. We haven't spoken about anyone other than Fathom for a little while. So we'll just do a, a quick piece here on, on Fathom, which is um, simple privacy-focused analytics from our friends uh, Paul Jarvis and Jack Ellis. You can check them out at usefathom.com slash north. You'll get yourself a free 14-day trial and a $20 credit. So you'll get mm, about two months free with with the combination of the trial and the and the $20 credit. So definitely check them out. Let them know that we sent you. And also thanks to our friends at Work Vivo, Joe Lennon, who we haven't spoken about for a little while. Um, we thank you also for sponsoring. If you're interested in any of that kind of stuff, definitely feel free to hit us up. But that's that's all we've got for today. I need to run and get some stuff done. So I'm going to have to sign off. Well, I'll let Jake sign off the episode because he does it so well. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. This was episode 77. You can find show notes for this episode at northmeetsouth.audio slash 77. Of course, if you liked the show, we would really appreciate it if you would rate us up in your podcatcher of choice. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. Hit us up on Twitter at Jacob and at Michael DeBrenda if you have any questions or you'd like to harass us. We'll respond to either. We love you all. Thanks. Stay safe out there. Peace. Bye.